Hello, my name is Nick Helm. I'm a comedian. Uh, I'm doing the Bloomsbury Theatre uh, on Friday the 19th of October 2012. Uh, and I'm doing my last Edinburgh show, This Means War. I don't know what time it starts. It probably starts sometime after seven. But if you get there at seven, you can have a drink uh, and then go and see it. Uh, and it's not going to be the whole night. It'll probably be finished. I don't know. I don't know how it, the evening works yet, but it'll be good. And uh, I'm also doing the Brighton Centre the Wednesday before that on the 17th of October uh, in Brighton, that is. And that's the same thing. That's This Means War. Um, and uh, that is what I'm currently looking forward and plugging at the moment. If you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, my Twitter account is ntphelm. Uh, but it's not me that does it because I get someone else to do that now because um, I used to do my own Twitter, but it was like giving, you know, permission for strangers to insult you directly on your phone. So uh, I had to stop doing it. Um, but if you want to contact me, you can email me on my uh, website, which is www.nickhelm.co.uk and I try and write back to people. Or I've got a Facebook page and I write back to people on that. Just Facebook me. I'm quite laid back about it all, really. Just try and be nice to nice people, don't you? I think that's all I've got to say about that. So, Nick, how did you get into comedy? Um, I, uh, I was 25 and I made a list of things I wanted to do before I was 26. And one of the things on it was comedy, do stand-up. So I gave myself a deadline and before I was 26, I did a stand-up gig. And that was that. And what was your first gig like? It was really good. <laughs> it was really good. I smashed it. Um, yeah, it was at the, it was downstairs at the King's Head in Crouch End. Uh, and I did... Uh, oh, I did, um, I did a, I did a one-day comedy course with Pepperstock. And at that time, it was like... I think it was about 100, 150, 200 quid which was more money than I'd ever seen because I was unemployed and I couldn't, I was unemployable. No one, I, you know, no one wanted to give me a job. Um, and I'm rubbish at interviews and stuff like that. So, um, so I thought, well, I, well, I'll spend whatever little money I have on one thing that might be useful in the future. So I invested £200 in doing a one-day comedy course. And at the end of it, they gave you a phone number of uh, the guy, uh, of... Peter Graham, who runs uh, downstairs at the King's Head in Crouch End, and I phoned up, and uh, he was quite scary, uh, and I ended up getting a five-minute spot, and I went down, and I think that was just in, like, uh, September 2006, so it was just before my 26th birthday, and I did that, and uh, it was really uh, scary, and I wrote down a, lot, a load of things that I thought might be funny, but, you know, they're all unconnected and I, and, I, and that was the first time I did actual one-liners as well so I mean I, I do one-liners at the beginning of my gig and uh, uh, part of my part of my act is that I come out on stage and I shout all of these like sort of terrible one-liners uh, and I did that the very first time I did comedy because um, I just thought it was a funny idea um, yeah and I did some like anecdotes and I did some jokes um of just things that I'd said to my friends and I'd wrote them down. Um, and yeah, I did it and it went really well. And I was like, oh, that was, I had like a full, you know, it was at the time, the people that actually did the course, um, uh, Brian Luff and Georgina Sowerby, uh, they were in the, they were in the gig. They didn't know I was doing it and they were in the gig on the day and they came up to me and they said, wow, well, that was really good. How many gigs have you done? And I said, oh, that was my first gig. And they said, your first gig? Because the way, the way that you did it, you know, I thought it must have been like your third. And I was like, wow. I was like, whoa, three, yeah, it looked like I'm three gigs in. And at the time I thought, wow, three gigs, I must be amazing. I must be amazing. Three gig. It looks like I'm in three gigs in. It's only my first gig. And now it's only now that I've done about 3,000 gigs that you go, Oh, three gigs. Yeah, I was still rubbish. I was still really rubbish. In fact, what generally happens is you have a good first gig and then three gigs in, you're rubbish again. You're like, it's like, you've ne you know, because yeah, the first time you've got adrenaline and uh, a full sense of confidence that, oh, I could do this. And uh, you do it and it goes much better than you think it, 
it, it will go. And then when you do your second gig, that's when uh, you come crashing down to reality and then you realise, oh, I can't do this at all. And then the third gig is even worse. So I think I did my second gig at Christmas um, that year. So I had about a three-month gap. And then I properly started uh, in about January or February in 2007. Um, yeah, and then I had about six months of being absolute... Yeah, ab absolutely terrible. Um, but it was something that I wanted to do, and because of the first gig going well, I thought, yeah, well, I, I enjoyed that so much that I thought, well, I'll just carry on because I know I'm, I know I'm not very good now, but I'm, you know, it's better to be at the bottom of a ladder that you want to climb than halfway up one that you, you know. So, um, so I thought, oh, it's good, yeah, brilliant, I, 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 and also, you know, as long as you kind of like, well, I, I always thought that as long as when you start doing something, um. You're prepared to be rubbish, you know, and you're prepared to not be very good because you're learning something for the first time. Uh, you know, not put false expectations, you know, ridiculous expectations on yourself and just do it for the experience of doing it. Not because you think that you're going to make a living out of it, but just because you want to do something. It gets you out of the house. You know, you're unemployed and you're depressed and you just think, well, I've got no friends. Everyone's moved away. I live with my parents. I haven't got a girlfriend. What have I got? Nothing. Well, I'll get out of the house. I'll do five minutes, but I'm a free gig. And then you do it, and and you do it because you want to do it, and you're enjoying it. And then, uh, you know, you didn't. I didn't have any expectations. I didn't think it would go anywhere. I just did it because I liked doing it. And then, um, yeah, it, it took off after about four years. <laughs> so you said that after you did your first gig, you were gigging regularly. How? regularly did you gig well i mean after my first gig after like a three month gap and then i started properly in um the beginning of 2007 uh, regularly i mean i think there's a lot more gigs now than when i started so regularly for me i mean you were lucky if you well i was lucky because i didn't live in london if i got like two gigs a month maybe so i started out like really slowly you'd have a gig here and a gig there. they were hard to get as well because um there were lots of other uh, on the open mic circuit, there were lots of other better acts than me, and um, so you'd get a gig here and there, and it was kind of like, oh, I, I, I remember. I mean, when I when I when I first started, before I even knew really what I was doing, I started running uh, my own comedy night on the Isle of Dogs because my friend uh, runs my friend Adam Adam Hemming, um, who used to teach me drama at school. He was in the sixth form, and uh, there was an after-school drama club that. I was in the first year and he was in, yeah, he was in the sixth form when we got on. Um, and then when I left school, he came to see one of my shows that I did in 2004. Uh, oh, before I did comedy, I used to write plays or shows. They weren't really plays, they were like shows. I write shows now as a stand-up, I write shows, but I don't really think my, my stand-up shows are really stand-up shows. There's always about ten minutes of stand-up and then everything else is just like, ta-da! Um... So they were like that. They were more like that, uh, but there were other people in them, and now they're kind of one-man extravaganzas. But back then, there was like they were like four men extravaganzas. Well, three men and one woman, and then um, so I wrote a couple of shows at university, and then uh, in two thousand four, I did a show called Love Life um, with uh, with my friend uh, Rob Stott, um, and. Um, and Adam came to see that, and then he offered me kind of like four years later or three years later, he said, do you want to do a thing? So the thing that actually, you know, uh, got me got me going and writing material regularly was the fact that I started running a fortnightly uh, comedy club on the Isle of Dogs, which no one ever came to. Um, but I'd always write new material for that. Um and then, and and then that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I mean, if you if 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 it's if if the point of anything, if the point in talking about this is to really share experiences. Then, then really, the good thing about starting a comedy club, and we didn't know what we we're doing. So, so I'd like book like ten people uh, on a Sunday night in the middle of nowhere, uh, and all the tubes would finish at ten. So you know, we'd start we'd start at seven. No one we wouldn't get an audience. The audience would be other acts. But because you'd get 10 acts in, there would be 10 comedians that you would meet because um, you'd book them off like emails and off the internet and through word of mouth and stuff. And then they'd come 
and they'd do your gig and you'd meet them and hopefully if they had a nice time they would offer you a gig and then that way you kind of it's like networking I suppose but that's a horrible way of thinking about it uh, and some of them people you know I'm still friends with I'm still friends with pretty much everyone that I used to book and, and you know I still do gigs for them and I still try and um, Bobby Carroll uh, did did my gig down on the Isle of, Isle of Dogs and I still gig for him and uh, one of my blaps I put him in one of my blaps and um and that's nice because it's a little community and then you kind of you kind of meet people and you share gigs with each other and then that's how you really expand but when, when I first started it was like one or t one gig a fortnight or, and that was my aim <laughs> and then uh, and then you'd get other gigs and then eventually you know I was lucky to like get a gig a week uh, probably after a year I was doing a gig a week which I was happy with because I wasn't expecting anything anyway and then after two years I was like two gigs a week and then three years. Oh no, I'm gigging every night, and this is the most expensive hobby I've ever known. It's fifteen pounds for a travel card to get into London for an unpaid five-minute spot in, you know, Wimbledon. And um, uh, you know, and there'd be times where I couldn't get home, and I'd have like an office job, and I'd be working, you know, nine to five thirty, and uh, and I'd, I'd, um, I would, I'd miss the last train, so I'd have to stay up all night in Blackfriars station and wait for my first train back or London Bridge station and I'd wait for my first train back at like five o'clock in the morning I'd get on the train I'd go back um I'd get 20 minutes sleep I'd go into work and I'd do nine, I'd do my job and then I'd get on a train and go back into London and do another gig uh I used to put out chairs for Hills Jago at Amuse Moose um and uh I produced like a stand uh, it was like a character night for Stuart Stuart Miles, Stuart Miles, Stuart Mills, Stuart Miles. He used to present Blue Peter. He did a drag act in a gay club in uh, in Soho, and I used to kind of, I say produce. I used to turn the lights on and off and put the chairs out basically, but um, and organise the acts, uh, and that was interesting. That was an interesting experience. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, I'd always miss my train. I'd always stay up all night. I'd, do my job and I remember kind of like oh, sorry have you got any more questions but I remember like um, like I was, at, I was I was sat in my office because uh, I eventually I eventually started getting temp work and I think I got paid I got paid maybe under £5 an hour I was doing like 40 hour weeks and at the end of the week I'd end up with £205 which isn't enough to live on <laughs> and I was sat at my desk and Nuts TV phoned me up and they said uh do you want to come in and do... I don't know how they got my number. Oh, it's a friend of a friend. Or it was, maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was just a friend. Not even a friend of a friend. Just just an actual friend. And uh, they put me in contact with Nuts TV. And they said, do you want to come in and uh, do five minutes for Nuts TV for £100? And I was like, yeah, that's half a week. You know, that's 20 hours work. Yeah, I'll do that. So I went. So I had to say, oh, no, to my, to my manager. I'd say, oh, no, I've got to go home the central heating's packed in and I've got to go and I went off and I did uh, went into London and I did uh, five minutes on that's TV and I came back again the next day and I was like yeah we sorted it yeah got the, yeah we've got the heating back on it's fine we're gonna be all right <laughs> and it's fine because nobody watched Nuts TV so uh so it's the perfect crime. It's great, and it, and it, you, just, you know, it's like five minutes. So you do that thing where you go, oh right, yeah, five minutes. So five minutes, that's a hundred pounds. Ten minutes, that's two hundred pounds. So uh, I can't do maths, but what's that? One thousand? Is that twenty-four? What is it? It's like one thousand two hundred pounds an hour. What is it? I can't do maths, but it was. But you you break it down like that, and then you like tell your friends, oh yeah, I'm on fifty pounds a minute. <laughs> but you're not you're not on fifty pounds a minute. But you know, you I'm on like twenty pounds a minute. That's uh, so. That's that I think all comedians start doing that when they kind of like get their first. Or you do a ten minute spot and you get paid a hundred quid, or you get paid fifty quid, and then you break it down because all of your friends that aren't in comedy are doing so much better than you, and so you've got to give yourself. A, oh, I made fifty quid this week, but if you put it down per hour, I am a millionaire. Uh, <laughs> and so you, you know, my mate was an estate agent, and he said, "Look at my, look at my table." And I was like, "Yeah, that's a nice table." And there was a pen on the table, and it was like, "Guess how much the table cost." I don't know, a thousand pounds. Wow, that's great. That's a th that's a thousand pounds table. How how much? Guess how much the pen cost. I don't know how much is the pen. Two thousand. You've got a two thousand pound pen on a one thousand pound <laughs> table, and it's just like, yeah, right, yeah. Well, I'm on twelve hundred pounds an hour. <laughs> 
if you did the maths. So, so, so you need that that sort of thing to kind of like keep you going at first. Like when when something like that comes home, you know, you phone your mum and you go, "Look at me! I told you, I told you." And I'm holding down a nine to five job. I told you I could do it. So, how did your family feel about you doing comedy? I thought my family were really um, not necessarily happy, but they were supportive. I mean, um, when I was because uh, when I was at school. Um, I wasn't, it wasn't like a really posh school, um, but they were very focused, uh, we had a really good drama teacher, or we had really good drama teachers, um, uh, Louise Wallace, Stephen Bryce, Jan Palmaseo, um, so they were the three main ones, um, and they, uh, because it was quite a sports orientated uh, school, they were really interested in um, uh, making kind of like the drama department as um, important and influential as the PE department. Um, and I think in 1997, they took our whole year group up to do um, Romeo and Juliet in the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, and I was in that. I, I did. I had a part in that. I was. I was in that. Yeah. I did Romeo and Juliet. I was. I. I wasn't Romeo, or Juliet, but I was in it. What part were you? I was the prince. I was the prince at the beginning. I basically went in and I shouted at him and I said, "Stop! Stop! Stop messing around!" <laughs> and then at the end, I'd go, "Oh, they're dead. That's a bit sad." So I got the. I got basically the first line in the play and the last line in the play. Um, I know there was chorus work, so I didn't get the first line in the play, but um, <laughs> I got near enough the first speech and the last speech. So, uh, yeah, I got to say, for never was a story of more woe than that of Juliet and her Romeo. See, I remember it always. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so we did that in 97, and then they took another play up in 98, and then they took another play up in 99, and then I went to university. Um, and the first year at university, I didn't do... Uh, I didn't do anything I didn't do a play or anything I just did university and then I missed it and so uh second year university I wrote something because I just wanted to do something and that's when I took something up so all the way through the school stuff my parents were really supportive and then all the way through my plays um uh, they were you know really really supportive my mum would make costumes and my dad would make props and uh, you know we'd use our garden as rehearsal space uh, it was really low budget like uh, I used to make props out of candle wax and stuff um, and uh, chicken carcasses and we'd just melt stuff up and uh, there was like meant to be a pile of rotting flesh and so we kind of we made that out of bones and candle wax and stuff and we kept that for years and then it started rotting but um, yeah so uh, that was so 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 they were always really supportive but then it, I think it got to a stage where I, I wasn't aware of this until recently but uh, it got to a stage when um uh, my dad was always pushing me into kind of like, what? okay, th this is all very well and good, but why don't you try doing an IT course? Uh, and I, I tried, I went in for meetings about IT courses, but I, was, I just found it soul destroying. And you'd meet all these people that were doing these jobs, and it's just kind of like, I think that's all very well, but I just don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do. And uh, and I had I had my own theatre and education company actually when I left uh, university, which was a really small thing. But we got one contract where we went around schools and uh, warned kids about car crashes. Um, I did that for two years, and it paid quite well in terms of that we could keep a business running. And it, but it wasn't very creative. But what I did with that was I used the leftover money uh, or the profits, you could say. I wasn't very business minded. What I should have done is spent all of the money on the productions, but I ended up uh doing it so that we ended up with a with a small profit which I ended up spending on doing more shows in Edinburgh. So I had a creative outlet. Uh but every everything everything that I ever uh, I've ever made up until 2010 but every penny that I ever made uh doing bar work and temp work and everything I always I poured into I always poured it back into Edinburgh so that I go up to Edinburgh once a year and put all my money into that um and I just didn't want to do anything that wasn't creative and um and my dad was always kind of like oh why don't you do kind of like so the reason I was temping was because of my dad kind of saying that and my mum was always kind of like and my dad used to get really worried and stressed about it and and he'd kind of like get on at me quite a lot about um, getting a 
not he would never say get a proper job but he was always kind of like it's all very well to do this but just make sure you've got a backup plan but i think ray winstone said that if you've got a backup plan if you're an actor and you've got a backup plan then you're never going to be an actor and um and I, i've always listened to ray winstone more than my dad so um so I just took his advice instead. And so my dad was always really stressed about it. And I had to just tell, to, cause, and I couldn't deal with the fact that my dad was so worried all the time about me. So in the end, I just had to block him out. And I just thought in the long run, he'll be happy for me. And I can't let whatever he's going through, whatever projected feelings he's got that are on top of me, I've got to just ignore them and just get on with what I want to do. Um, and I found out much later that um, my mum was the supportive one in the family and my dad was the one that just said he should just pack it in and just get an office job, which was odd because uh, my dad um, had an office job and he hated it. So it's just weird. It's weird uh, that that was the case. But he said that, you know, he said that to me and uh, and he's kind of like, yeah, admitted he was wrong, which I think is a dream, isn't it? Not only that I'm a professional comedian, but that my dad has admitted to me that he was wrong. That's what everyone wants, isn't it? For your parents to apologise to you <laughs> and say, you were right. <laughs> and that's what he did, yeah. So, yeah, so they're, yeah, they're, so that, they're long, that's the, all of these answers are very long. Um, I'll tell you why. It's because I've been in bed with a bad, I've, I've, I, I locked my, I locked my uh, what you call it? my shoulder blades. My shoulder blade locked, and I've been incapacitated. I couldn't. I couldn't. I literally couldn't walk. I've been like hunched over, walking around like a question mark. Like my spine has been completely twisted around, and I lost the use of my left arm, and I'm left-handed, so I haven't been able to write or anything else. Um, and uh, I've been in. I've just been in bed on my own for basically two weeks and this is the first time I've really been out and had anyone to talk to and <laughs> it doesn't take much to get me to talk about myself but you just need to push me in the right direction and then I'm off I'm just <laughs> off but um but that, that, that is the long way of answering that yeah my parents are supportive and they have been supportive and they still make my props my mum made my costume this year and uh my dad made my magic legs um if uh, I did a show called This Means War in Edinburgh and I had some bits and pieces in it. And they always they always make all the stuff for me. They, they roll their eyes and they go, oh, but they're both retired, so I don't know what else they'd do if they weren't making me props. I think of it like a family business and it's just kind of like, come on, we're in it together, you know? I haven't got time to make my own props, you do it. It's like, it's, you know, it's like an old age pensioner's sweatshop. And, <laughs> and I go home and say, come on, we've got another Edinburgh to do. <laughs> and they go, oh, no. It's like, it's January, Nick. He's just like, yeah, yeah. You make that cape, Mum. Because when you finish that cape, there's a lot of other stuff that you've got to make. So the sooner you do that, the sooner you can get on with all the other stuff that he's doing. So uh, it is like that. It is quite stressful. They do find it quite stressful. Uh, but I find it stressful. It's, it's worse for me. I've got to go on and perform it. So uh, so it's in her interest to have me looking good. She always says that, you know, if I've got a photo shoot or something, she goes, I'll make sure... Make sure you look nice. Make sure you look smart. And it's just like, have you seen my act? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I'm not meant to look smart. And she goes, well, you know what I mean. I said, no, I honestly don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean by look smart. I am not a smart person. My act is not revolved around looking smart. You know, make sure you brush your hair. Why? <laughs> I, I would be living a lie. The reason I'm doing this is so I don't have to brush my hair. Idiot. <laughs> now make that cape. Um, so yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's a family. It is a family visit. Like you know, my dad kind of like um, uh, sends me jokes. Like he writes, he writes jokes. He sits. He likes to think of himself as like a, a like a, a modern day Peter Ustinov, like sitting at home writing down his jokes, and uh, and he sends me them. And I try them out every so often. Uh, and he wrote, he wrote. Uh, I I got the Dave best joke in two thousand eleven. And that was, basically it's a one-liner. And um, and it originated from a three-paragraph, <laughs> three-paragraph email from my dad. And I, and I just like honed it down so that it was one line and I tried it and I thought it was all right, but not as good as the stuff I'd written. And it was one of the only jokes through all of the previews that made it all the way to the end. <laughs> and then, you know, they phone you up and they say, oh, you've won an award. You go, oh yeah, what is it? And they go, Oh, it's the best joke of 2011. I, know, I, I, I am aware that I've brought this up, but it is on topic. 
um, <laughs> I don't I don't always bring it up, but yeah, you find the best joke of 2011, and you go, oh, oh, which joke is it? Yeah, is it, is it all the jokes that one of the jokes that I work really hard on and I really like. And you go, it's the seven dwarves joke. Oh yeah, the one that my dad wrote. <laughs> the one that my dad wrote out of the whole hour. The contributing five seconds that my dad wrote is the one that is the only is the only part of my show that has been given any critical reaction whatsoever. That's fantastic. Thank you. But you were also nominated for the Foster's Edinburgh Comedy Award for best show. Yes. Yes, I was. Yes. And that wasn't all just one joke which your dad contributed to. No, it wasn't. And it was. And in hindsight, that was it was a really nice thing. It was really good. Um, and uh, and I wish I'd enjoyed it more at the time but during August in 2011 I was very ill and I was having a lot of personal problems and um and it was so hectic and it was such a slog to get the show in any shape whatsoever but it always is I mean I forget that every year uh, you know this year was just th- this year was the hardest show that I've ever written um and you look back on 2011 and you go why can't it be like as easy as it was last year but then if you actually put yourself in where you were last year that was horrific uh, like dare to dream was 2011 and that was that was really hard and the whole experience of performing the show every day like i was really ill for two weeks and i just was i didn't have i'd get up and do the show and then i'd go back to bed again because i was completely broken and the show was very high energy as well uh, so at the time they go, oh yeah, oh you've won best joke and you go, oh that's great. Oh you've been nominated and you go, oh god, just give me a break. I just want to get through the month, you know. Um, and also I didn't think the show was that great. I didn't, I didn't at the time. I didn't really think um, I wasn't as proud of Dare to Dream as I was of Keep Hold of the Gold, which was 2010, the year before. And I thought Keep Hold of the Gold. I thought that was brilliant. I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite well. I'm very self-critical and I'm not kind of like. Um, you know, I don't, I've got a pretty low opinion of myself. I'm realistic about it all. But I thought, you know, Keep Hold of the Gold was brilliant. I was really happy with that. I'd, you know, we didn't get nominated or anything, but I didn't go in expecting to be... I didn't even think that was an option. I was just happy to do a show. And we got good audiences, and that's all I wanted. And then when we did Dare to Dream, I felt a lot of pressure because we were at the Pleasance that year. That was the first year I was at the Pleasance. And, uh, and Dare to Dream was just like, oh, let's just... Uh, my only expectation with Dare to Dream was so that it wasn't an embarrassment compared to Keep Hold of the Gold. Um, and then it became, you know, oh, everyone's talking about Dare to Dream. And it was just like, oh, that's nice. But you should have seen last year's. It's much better. It was honestly much better. Um, but then now I've got a bit of distance. I realised that Dare to Dream was a significant improvement on keep hold of gold and it was a different I moved in a different direction but it's a very angry scary shouty show compared to keep hold of the gold and you know that was just something that happened through the production of it through the rehearsal no, not rehearsals but through the writing of it and putting it and constructing it it became very angry scary show and it was in such a small venue as well that that kind of helped but that was never the intention really and it you know the venue does affect what you end up creating and so you went to Edinburgh when you were at school and then you've been coming back to Edinburgh ever since. What was it about the Edinburgh Festival that got you when you were still at school? I think, um, it, I think ironically, it's all the things that I hate about it now, which is the Royal Mile, you know, school kids flyering, you know, poncing around, just, you know, amateur dramatics, just... Human statues, jugglers, unis you know, all of the street performers, you know, just everything that I, I can't stand about it, really, or that makes it a slog when you're trying to get somewhere and you push through it. I loved all that because we were them. We were we were we were the, we were the people in the streets that were annoying people. Um and also we didn't write it. We didn't write William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, you know. Someone else did. And uh <laughs> and uh so so we didn't have any pressure. We had to just turn up. And because we were all like naughty teenagers, we all got hammered every night. You know, I, I was I was almost sick on stage like many times just because because we were at like midday or 11 o'clock or something like that in the morning. 
So you'd get on stage and you'd have a hangover and, you know, I was barely holding vomit down my throat and then I'd do my speech and I'd go off stage and just be like, oh, oh, oh. And then you get through the performance. It's like a two-hour performance, which is unusual for Edinburgh because they're normally one-hour slots. Um, and then you'd go out and you get absolutely battered. <laughs> and you go, oh, it's wonderful to be a part of the arts. Uh, and uh, And then you do that for three years. You know, and you'd fly and you'd had more confidence. You weren't embarrassed. There was nothing riding on it. It's not like you thought, oh, you know, I could get a career out of this. You're just going, oh, we're up here with our friends and we're kind of doing something that's fun and it takes up two hours of the day and then everything else is just kind of like going to see stand-up comedy. You know, I think it's either 97 or 98 that I saw Al Murray for the first time in a tiny little venue. And that was amazing. And he picked on me. I mean, I went to, I've been, to, uh, like, and, like when I first started doing Edinburgh and stuff like that, I went to see Al Murray every time that I could see him. And I'd always sit on the front row so he'd pick on me. And he'd pick, I went to see him about five times in the space of about two years. And he picked on me about three or four of those times. And I don't know why. I mean, I, you know, but I, don't, I honestly don't know why that he, why he picked on me. Because it wasn't like I was, annoying i wasn't kind of like going pick me pick me but i was just sat there and he, you know um yeah he was he used to, yeah he was amazing um and and you know and we'd go and see like package shows before we really knew what package shows were where you think this is what comedy in edinburgh is you'd go oh look there's three comedians on let's go and see that that seems like a that seems like a bargain and then when you do package shows now you go who would come to see a package show but um but back then, it's like, those, those are what you're going to see. So, yeah, so, like, all of my interest in doing stand-up and performing and stuff like that probably comes from all that, because that's what we'd do. We'd do, we'd do our school play, and then we'd sneak out and get hammered and watch stand-up comedy. And then we'd get in late and then throw up on stage and then do it again, and it was brilliant. We wouldn't actually throw up on stage. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> and then you've also performed on the Free Fringe as well as in ticketed venues this year, you were in Pleasance. Um, did you find that there was a big difference when you moved from the free fringe to ticketed venues? Um, I don't know. I don't know really because I think uh, how many years did I do the free fringe? I did free fringe first time in uh, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. So I did it three years doing the free fringe, uh, and I did about five or six or maybe seven shows in two thousand over two thousand seven, two thousand eight. So I did quite a few shows in Edinburgh. Or maybe six, maybe three shows a year, and you know, you they were sometimes in the middle of nowhere in different venues, you know, and some some of them were in the middle of nowhere, and you wouldn't get an audience, and you'd cancel every day, and some of them you'd get good audiences in, and some some of them it, they would vary depending on the weather, and it was fine. And then in two thousand nine, when I kind of um, I was meant to be doing a show with uh, two other comedians uh, for PBH, um, PBH free. Free Fringe and Laughing Horse Free Festival. Yeah, so for PBH Free Fringe, uh, I was doing a show with two other comedians, or we were planning a show up in Edinburgh, and they dropped out quite near the last minute, and I tried to cancel it with PBH, and he wouldn't let me. So I ended up saying, right, well, I'll put together as much of an hour as I can just to fill up a time slot. But I was doing a show with James Acaster and Josh Widdicombe as well called Acaster, Helm and Whittacombe, live at the Voodoo Bar. <laughs> and, uh, and we were just thinking, well, everyone's going to come and see Acaster, Helm and Whittacombe because we're all great. So I'm going to do this one-man hour, which is going to be an embarrassment, and I'm not going to tell anyone about that. And Acaster, Helm and Whittacombe was the reason why we're all going up to Edinburgh, and that would be great. And uh, Acaster, Helm and Whittacombe was in the worst venue, that the Voodoo Bar, it was the not the voodoo rooms, the voodoo bar, is in the worst venue that anyone, uh, that, I've, that I have ever been in. And I've been in thousands and thousands of venues and this was the worst venue that I have, just, it was smelt of vomit. Um, it was like, there was like a youth production of Shakespeare that was on before us or something. It was, uh, um, it, it, it smelt of bleach is the thing. The, when you came in, the upstairs smelled of bleach, and then when you went down the stairs, you went. It looked like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre stairway. There was kind of like it was, just, and there was like metal clanging doors, and it was terrifying, like with, uh, you know, um, disgusting strip lighting that kind of 
it was soulless and then you'd go into this room that smelt of sick uh that had like broken glass everywhere and there wasn't a microphone and um there was like half deflated party balloons on the wall stuck with set just it was just absolutely horrific i think like two weeks into it josh picked up a little um a towel that was sat over a bucket and found that there was a bucket of either stagnant water or sick in there that we'd just been breathing in for two weeks and we you know and we got no we didn't get audiences and no one came to see it and i think one day we had three comedians that came in and one uh one loner and the three comedians sat on the front row and they just didn't and we knew them as well, but we didn't know them, know them, but we kind of knew them distantly. They just sat in the front row and just stared at us. And uh, just like, why are you even here? And it turned out that the one person that was on their own was a reviewer, and they said, don't come and see it, it's depressing. And so not only did we not have an audience, but what little audiences we had hated us. Um, so that was a disaster. But then about... 10 minutes walk down the road I was doing my one man show which wasn't really a one man show I did about 45 minutes and then I had a guest on every day Joel Domit came on and did it once and uh, he made himself if you ever get Joel Domit on get into lactate out of his nipples um, it's the most disgusting thing you'll ever see because uh, I made him do a party trick and Joel Domit with his lovely smile he's like so innocent and friendly and he goes what's your party trick Joel I can lactate out of my nipples. And he can't really na- lactate. He just kind of like squeezes a sweat gl- gland and his nipples start dripping. And you go, that is just, you know, don't bring that on my show. Anyway, that was like a poetry and music show, which was kind of like an early blueprint for what I do now. And um, and we started, it was at the Rat Pat Bar which is just at the end of Prince's Street. It's kind of hard to get to. And we started off with small audiences, and then um, and we didn't have any... We didn't even really have any posters or, or flyers at the start, and I didn't have a press release. And then by the end of it, um, we were selling out, and it was standing room only, and I don't know how that happened. Um, but I guess it was just word of mouth. And it was actually it was a good show. I was really happy with it, um, but I wasn't expecting it to be. I was expecting it to be a horrific embarrassment, so it was a, it was a real big surprise. That, that was called Bad Things Happen in Trees. Um, and it was a really big surprise that that happened. And because that went well, I just thought, well, I'll do an hour the next year for the £5 fringe when I did Keep Hold of the Gold in 2010, because it's just like, there's no point in doing less than an hour, because that would be a step backwards. So I did an hour, and there's no point in not doing a paid venue, because we did, we did as well as you can in a free venue. So it was £5. The £5 fringe was really good, because it was an intermediate level between you know doing full whack, £12.50 a ticket, and being free. And I think it was an important thing to have, and it's a shame that it's gone. But the £5 fringe was really good. Um, so, and yeah, I just noticed that, I, I guess I noticed that I improved. But And and having a producer to sell tickets for you instead of having to fly a few, I'm rubbish at flyering. Like I put people off coming to see my own show. It's embarrassing, because you say, come and see my show, it's brilliant. And they go, who wrote it? And you go, oh, I did. <laughs> Who's in it? I am. Who directed it? Oh, me again. <laughs> And then they go, yeah, and how good is it? Oh, it's all right. It's all, it's all, it's okay. So that show is a lot better down the road. Go and see that instead. And you know, I'm embarrassed about it really. So having someone to take over that, that was the main difference between free venue and if you haven't got word of mouth, then you've got someone that's actually selling tickets for you. And um, but then I think there was a lot of word of mouth with keep hold of the gold as well. I don't know. I don't know. It's different when you're doing it. You do it and there's eight people in the room one day and then the next day there's more and then the next day there's more and then by the end of it there's it's sold out and you're just doing the same show every day and then the audiences change and you, there's no rhyme or reason to it as far as you're concerned. It's, you know, no one's coming up to you saying go and see your show. So you don't know. You d- I don't know. I don't know how or, or any of that works. People always, go, you know, not people always come up, but you know, when we're doing Death Dream, people are saying a lot. Of people are talking about you. So are they? Because they're not talking about me to me. I don't know. I'm ill. <laughs> Stop talking to me. I've got to go home and lie down. So uh, yeah, that was a really long answer as well. I've been so lonely, <laughs> so lonely in bed. It's just been me. Anyway, go on. So what advice would you give to anyone thinking of taking a show up to Edinburgh? Um, just do it, really, I suppose. I mean, a lot of people 
Um, a lot of people worry a lot about when they're going to do their first show. Uh, and like, oh, I can't do my first show yet because I might... By the time I do my first show, I might not be eligible for getting, uh, you know, the Best Newcomer Award. There's only five people that are going to get the best... Get, going to get nominated, or six people, or however many people. There's not going to be many people that get nominated for it. And as soon as you do your first hour... You know, you can see whether you can do an hour or not. And as soon as you do your first hour, a lot of people use their first hour to really just do, like, their greatest hits and to do... Get your first hour out of the way and then do your second hour. And then do your third hour and then do your fourth... Because, you know, I'm... If you count bad things happening in trees, I'm, I've, I've done, like, four hours now of solo stand-up. And it's actually... It, it's, it's it's a really good feeling to get stuff under your belt and just to go, oh, right, well, what can I do now? And I no longer feel like I'm at the stage... So after this year, I felt there was a bit of it this year where, because um, I'd done some telly, um, I had to introduce myself to a new audience. I had my old audience from Edinburgh and I had a new audience from telly and I had to do something that would please both groups. So I felt like this year was another kind of opportunity to introduce myself as a live performer but um i kind of don't feel like i need to do that anymore uh in terms of if i did another hour in edinburgh and i could kind of do what if i wanted to do and that's exciting when you think oh i could do anything i want so my advice to a new performer would be to just get it started because you're only going to get better you know i look back on the stuff i was writing in 2001 some of it's quite good still but a lot of it's really embarrassing and really kind of like on the nose and um earnest but i needed to write all that for me to kind of cringe a bit and then to go oh this is actually what i want to write you know um and just do it as soon as possible you know obviously try and make it good mind you maybe that's bad advice maybe you should wait until you've got an hour that you're really happy with but then there's a there's a there's an argument for waiting too long some people wait too long to do their first hours and then, um, and they've, you know, they've built it into this, like, mythical thing is, oh, I'm doing an hour, and it's taken them, you know, a long time to get there, and then it's kind of like, oh, no, I've got to write another one. I mean, since 2001, except for two years, I've done a show, no, except for, except for one year, no, two years, except for two years, um, I've written at least one show a year. And then sometimes I've written two and sometimes I've written three. Um, over however many years that is. Eleven years. Minus two. Nine years I've written about 17, 16 shows. And then you just get to a stage where you just think, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? And then you never run out of ideas. So you just, just keep writing them. Because the ideas that you want to cling on to and say, oh, this is the, my best idea. I always think that I've got my best idea in each show. So uh, I think in um, Keep Hold of the Gold, I did He Makes You Look Fat. And I thought, I'm never going to write anything that is as crowd-pleasing as He Makes You Look Fat. Uh, and I don't think I have. I don't think I've written anything as good as He Makes You Look Fat. And that is a little bit of a thing that hangs over me. But um, that's a lie. I have... I don't think I've written anything that's as accessible as he makes you look fat. That ev you know, everyone likes that. They go, "Oh, that's brilliant," because that is that's the closest I've ever come to writing a comedy song. Uh, whereas you know, it's got it's got like um, three verses, you know, three choruses, you know, set up, set up, punchline. Um, it kind of works as as a song, but it's not my best song. You know, I think. You know, but with Keep Hold of the Gold, I said I'm never going to write anything as good as he makes it fat. And so when I wrote Dare to Dream, he that song was hanging over me when I was writing Dare to Dream, and then I wrote the bully poem, um, the dear bully poem, and I th and I, I thought well, it's not he makes you look fat, it's not catchy, it's not a song, but I think that's the best thing I've ever written, and it's totally different from that. And then when I wrote um, this show, um, I got a song in it called uh, Don't Fall in Love with Me, and that is. I, I don't know if it's the best thing I've ever written, but it's my favourite thing I've ever performed. I think it's... I, I, I love that song. You know, I love it so much. And there's a... You know, there's uh, a bit in my show about Russian roulette. And that's like one of my favourite things. And there's no... You can't write that. That's not scripted. It's not like oh, I wrote down and wrote this whole improvised sequence, you know, about Russian roulette. It's just literally me, you know, 
messing around on stage with an audience member for 10 minutes, sometimes 15, sometimes 20 on a bad day. And, um, and yeah, you know, so each year you think I'm never going to, I'm never going to, and that's a different thing. That's not a song and that's not a poem and that's not a letter. That's, that's something else. That's, that's a bit of audience stuff. So every year you think I'm never going to write. And every year, well, I certainly do. Every year I think that piece of material is hanging over me and I'll never be able to beat that. And that is probably the best thing that I'll ever write. And then you just, I end up writing or doing something else that I'm equally happy with, but it's completely different and it's incomparable. Incomparable. You know, however you pronounce it. I'm not that clever. Yeah, I think I've made my point, but you wouldn't be able to compare, p- compare a letter about bullying to a song about making someone look fat. But they're equally good. They're equally valid. And, and you know, you can and you just move forward. And you do a lot of audience interaction. And when you were on the culture show, you said that the quickest way to start a show is by not giving the audience an option. It's just, this is happening. So have you always wanted to perform with that interactive style? And also that can invite a lot of heckling. So do you enjoy that aspect of comedy, having to deal with hecklers? To be honest, I don't have to deal with hecklers that often. Um, I, I, that not as not as much you know James Acaster deals with hecklers a lot more than I deal with hecklers James Acaster's like I you know I wear a jumper and I'm lovely and uh and he has he gets heckled all the time um by his own admission you know and I I, me and David Trent are friends and we're both friends with James and me and David don't get heckled but James will tell us about these terrible things that have happened to him and you go, oh, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how you do it. I'm the one that's going up to audience members and swearing in their faces and shouting at them and screaming at them. But they, but I don't get, I mean, I do get heckled, but not not often, like once every 10 gigs. But that, but my whole act is a joke, isn't it? I mean, it's not like, it's, I, think, I think the majority of people can see that. Occasionally you'll get people that come up to you at the end and they say, you're very angry. And you go, well, good, you've just described the act. <laughs> what, what, what do you think you've just watched it? But the reason for that is just the fact that you've got, you've got, you know, you've got lots of comedians doing lots of different things. You've got Joel Domit and you've got James Acaster and you've got Josh Widdicombe and you've got uh, Chris Ramsey and you've got all of these comedians that are doing, you know, uh, stand-up, like traditional stand-up in different sorts of ways and they do it really well. And, um, you know, when during my previews I was doing hours of just talking but it just doesn't interest me as something that I, something that I want to do. I think if you're going to spend... Seven months. If I'm going to spend seven months putting a show together, I want it to be like a show where you go, oh, wow, there's a beginning and a middle and an end and there's singing and dancing and there's kind of like, oh, and props and special. And I just want to put as much into a show, as many different things into a show as I can because um, because I guess, you know, I'm a create, uh, I'm a frustrated songwriter or I'm a frustrated, you know, I wrote a poem and I wanted to do it, and you know, there's no, there's nowhere to put that in a traditional stand-up set. So I just try. I guess I try and play to my strengths, and my strengths aren't straight stand-up. So I try and do all the other things, and try and fit as much into a show. Also to trick the audience into being interested. You know, if you change what you do every five minutes, then people can't second guess you. And I'm not like, I'm not like, you know, saying that, you know, I'm. I'm not being disparaging against doing straight stand-up. I love watching it. I think it's brilliant, but it's just not something that I necessarily think that I'm particularly skilled at. And um, and I want to do something different. So, so there. And when you swear at the audience and shout at them, do you ever feel like I shouldn't be doing that or they might get upset? Or Where did that come from? Just because it's funny. It's the wor- you know, it's the worst thing that you can do as a performer to go on stage and insult your audience. It you know, it's just a joke, isn't it? You know, to come out and shout at someone and you know, and to swear at them and to you know, because I'm the joke. You know, it's not like I actually I don't know I don't know the audience I don't know who they are I've never met them before. Right? I do the same thing every night. I come out I come out and I swear at people. And that's the joke. You just come out and you and, and you say the harshest thing that you possibly can 
to someone that you've never met before. And it's not the harshest thing that I possibly can, I swear. But I, I'm not descriptive with it. I'm not kind of, you know, I'm not, you know, whether you like him or not, uh, but I'm, I'm not I'm not Frankie Boyle. I'm not an offensive comedian that comes out and I, and I say, you know, things that are upsetting or, you know. I don't get complaints in terms of you've hurt my feelings or anything like that. I'm just swearing. Everyone swears. And so to just come out and swear, is that, that's the joke. It's someone that's really bad at what they do. And that's me. I'm bad at what I do. I'm not a good comedian. And my way of showing that is just by having all of my pent-up frustrations and my impotent rage and anger and I throw it at the audience and everyone can just see how pathetic I am but at the same time they feel sorry for me and at the end of 20 minutes they feel like they've been on a little adventure and then you come off stage and you know and people go oh god we survived that I thought he was going to pick on me at one point and he didn't and oh thank god I wasn't you know the one I that he got up on stage and then the person that gets up on stage they think oh I'm going to be humiliated by the end of it everyone loves them and they like them more than me and it's just like you know and everyone goes yeah that guy was alright and it's just like yeah I got him on stage he was brilliant wasn't he you know uh, so give, I think I think what you find is, well done, Nick. Um, <laughs> you know that I did that. Um, <laughs> uh, so you know it's it's a joke. It's just a, it's, it's all a joke, uh, and uh, and that's where the swearing came from. The swearing ge- came from genuine frustration. But since that it's been part of you know genuine frustration in Edinburgh of people just turning up at you know audience members just staring at you in gigs and you just like I don't want to go on stage and then you're coming out and swearing at them saying why are you here why are we here if you hadn't turned up I wouldn't be doing this but you don't want to be here and I don't want to be here now and then you just like explain that to them and then other acts find that funny I suppose I started doing it because acts found it funny and then audiences found it funny but not for a long time People didn't find me, you know, people still don't find me funny. That's fine, go and watch someone else. I'm not the comedian, I'm a comedian. I I tick a box for certain people and, you know, you can take me or leave me, can't you? And that's why you have more than one... If you have more than one comedian so that everyone can be catered for eventually... But, you know, there's not one comedian that's doing everyone's job. Some people love Michael McIntyre and some people hate Michael McIntyre. But the pe- but just because you hate Michael McIntyre doesn't mean that there's people out there that can't love him. You know, and, you know, some people like what I do and some people don't like what I do. And I don't mind if you don't like what I do. But as long as you are intelligent enough to work out that it is an act and that this is happening for a reason. Um, and I'd rather do what I do than kind of try and do what other people do so I don't know that was very introspective I suddenly was I felt like I was I was trying to explain to myself really why I'm doing it sometimes I don't know I don't know why I do it really it's so scary <laughs> it's, uh, what, yeah. it's like going up and spanking a lion <laughs> you go why am I doing this every night I could get my head ripped off uh, but every time you get up stage you think oh, I've got away with that one Dodged another bullet. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it's good. It's all right. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. So what was the question? <laughs> Do you remember the first time that you did the act when you were swearing and shouting at someone? And what was that like? What happened? I remember the first time that it became um, pretty much what it is now, which was I did a gig in Hitchin and I got booked to do 20 minutes and I only had 15 so I um so I had to uh, put some songs in it to pad it out because I never did songs you know I don't really like musical comedy um and I don't really consider myself to be a musical comedian I do songs but I think that they're songs that happen to be funny rather than songs that exist purely to be funny and I think there's uh, that's probably the problem with a lot of what I do is that you can laugh at it but in a way, if you oh, this is quite pretentious, but in a way, if you uh, emotionally connect to it on some level, um, then it's still done its job. And then, if you don't emotionally connect to it and you don't laugh at it, then it's failed. But if you can come out of it and you go, I laughed at that, but I was also actually uh, really sad, uh, and at the same time, I was terrified. And you come out of it and you feel all of these different emotions pulling you in different directions I think that's probably why Death's Dream did so well it's because people were genuinely terrified you know one guy came up to me and he said that was like coming off the saw ride in Thorpe Park and you know 
and you enjoy that. You enjoy going on like a roller coaster or something like that, don't you? Uh, but it's scary, and um, and it's not it's not like oh, come and see my lovely show and have a nice time for an hour and laugh. It's come and see my show, and there might be some funny. Or hopefully, it'll all be funny. But then there might also be bits that are sad and that make you think about nothing in particular, but maybe a relationship that you had that didn't work out. You know what I mean? It was. Uh, it's trying to. It's not trying to. It's. It's just how I write. Basically, I just write things that I understand, and I try and or or things that I try to understand. So I write about emotions more than, um, more than things or hobbies or politics, you know. Or I'd, I'm not an anecdotal comedian. So I think I did. A, I used to do a poem called Gin. Uh, and Gin was a poem where I'd say this is a poem called Gin, and then I would cry. And you could barely make out words. I'm not going to do it, but um, and there's two ways. There's, there's loads of ways of tackling that. That's a piece of observational material. But I've so you could do it like, hey, you know, when you phone your mum and you cry down the phone and you sound like this, don't you? Uh, and you could do it like that, or 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 you just take that out and you have a leap of faith and you think. Um, if I cut out all the extraneous information and just do it as a poem, it's not a poem, but you do it as a poem, uh, you say this is a poem called Gin and then you do it. And if the audience can relate to what it is, you don't need to say, uh, oh, hey, six months ago I was talking to my mum on the phone and I was crying. Or you don't have to say, hey, uh, you know, when you've just been dumped, you, do you don't need any of that information because they can get all that information. So I still do observational comedian, I just package it differently, I suppose. That's still not the question that you've asked, is it? It's still not the answer to the question that you've asked. I just, I'm, I'm sorry, I just haven't thought about that show in a very long time. What was the question? Because they've all been fantastic questions, but I mean, that was a good question. I, I, I would like to answer that question for you if I can. About the first time that you yeah. did yeah. your shouting, swearing material. Yeah, that's right. I was in Hitchin and um, I needed to do a song. So I put a song in the end and then I did it. And it was brilliant, you know, it was it, it, not like, oh, that was brilliant, but um, I think they recorded it for me. I, th I think I probably got it on disc. It's the first time I did like 20 minutes with music and stuff and um, and, it, and, it, and it went really well and I was really happy with it and there was a structure to it and it wasn't perfect, but it was the first time that I looked at it and I said, oh, that's good. You know, oh, that's that's the beginning of something that could be good. And that was like the beginning of this, really. Of uh, of me doing music and poems and jokes, yeah, you, know, you know, I guess I've got small anecdotes and stuff, but I've got stupid stories and one-liners and poems and songs. I try and do pretty much a bit of everything, you know. Keep keep them on their toes. You know, make twenty minutes feel shorter than it is, and then have a drink, you know, <laughs> breathe a sigh of relief that you got away with another one. <laughs> But you know, there's something. There's someone out there for everyone. I might not be that man. And do you have any tips or advice for aspiring comics? Yeah, don't copy anyone. <laughs> um, just, but just, I, I when I started, like however many six years ago, um, there was a tendency for a lot of people um, to come on and be like Stuart Lee. And you, I think there's less of that now because people have realised that Stuart Lee is already famous for being Stuart Lee. And uh, apart from Stuart Lee, because we've already got Stuart Lee, it's not the most financially rewarding route to go down in terms of comedy. It's not particularly mainstream. So now what you've got is a lot of mainstream acts that, you know... Um, there are trends in comedy that people go along with. And uh, it's... the Mm, yes I don't want to yeah so you can get swept a lot yeah I suppose so so when I I wanted to be like Stuart Lee when I started I wanted to be kind of deadpan and uh lethargic and uh sarcastic and I wanted to do all those things um and you'd be on a lineup with like 12 people you'd be at a laughing horse gig and there's like 12 acts on and you're all doing five minutes and you'd have audiences with short attention spans and then you'd have about six you know 22-year-old boys doing Stuart Lee impressions. And, you know, I wanted to do that. 
I wanted to be, I wanted to go on and do that, but the audience weren't up for it. So I'd started doing stuff that was more high energy just because it brought energy into the room so that, you know, a load of other people could do Stuart Lee after me and uh, <laughs> and it would inject a bit of energy into the room. So I was taking one for the team, really. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to do what I'm doing. I wanted to kind of do what Stuart Lee was doing. Um, so I guess the advice really is kind of just try and do something. Now I'm just really happy with it. I think it, I'm really true to myself. Um, if I want to write a poem and do a poem, I've put myself in a position where I can do that. I don't take myself seriously as a comedian, <laughs> despite the fact I've been talking solidly for an hour and a half. Um, I don't take myself seriously as a person, really. I don't take myself seriously. I'm not, I don't consider myself a poet that makes me cringe even saying it. Or as I just like doing things that I think are stupid or funny um, the way I see it. The way I see what's stupid and funny. If you, if you can translate that onto a, onto the stage, then that's what you need to be doing. And you know, people didn't find me funny for years, and people still don't find me funny. But a lot of people, I'm I'm, I'm winning people over. And I think if you can stick to your guns, in terms of that, you know, then and not get swept away with what the current trends are, and just kind of like go, oh, because what I'm doing is never was never fashionable. Um, in 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 my lifetime as a comedian, and then all of a sudden you've got you know people that you know a lot of a lot of acts that are doing kind of stuff um, like me. This kind of like ever, ever, that people talk about there being some sort of you know journalists and other people outside of performers talk about there being a movement, and uh, you know I guess that's because when we all started around the same time and there was kind of like an influx of a certain type of comedian we were working against that. But then there'll probably be another movement of people that don't want to get on telly. You know, there's a lot of comedians right now that, that seem to be kind of like part comedian, part presenter. And, oh, I'd, they'd be equally happy to be a professional comedian or to be a presenter. And there's going to be a movement in five years' time that's going to be related to that and what it's like to club with those people. And so it's kind of like, it's self-informing. So I guess, yeah, sorry, that's another one. That's another classic Helm response. Uh, but yeah, so my advice to a new comedian or someone thinking about trying comedy is to be true to yourself and not get swept along with the tide. And you study drama, television and theatre at the University of Winchester. Do you have any tips or advice for students? Uh, for students... Um, just enjoy university. I look back on it now and I wish that I'd enjoyed it a lot more than I did. But at the same time, uh, university is a perfect time, as I'm sure you know, um, to do stuff without the pressure of it impacting on your actual career and life. Um, I, I wrote my first two things while I was at university and I didn't have to worry about getting a job. I didn't have to really worry about money because we were, you know, um, we got money given to us back then I don't know how it works now but they gave you like loads of money just to go to university so I didn't have to worry about any of that so I just wrote some plays in my spare time um I guess a bit of advice because I I get I, I suffer from depression so um one of my piece of advice if you're a depressed student is rather than <laughs> or just a depressed person really is is try and turn that into a positive and kind of like um when you're depressed, write your feelings down and try and kind of turn that into something, turn it into something that's productive and positive. All of my writing originally stemmed from being crushingly uh, depressed at university because um, I kept getting dumped by the same girl for three years. Um, so I wrote, I've written, up until about 2009, I got so much material out of her. It was brilliant. I just kept writing stuff. Um and now all I need to do is just remember how I felt <laughs> and uh, and I can just, you know, churn out another one. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of like, you should just use your, you should, all of those experiences that you have when you're at university are worth keeping on to um, and uh, just use the financial freedom that you kind of have when you're at university and, you know, the uh, freedom of responsibilities at university to try and do something and, you know, I wish I'd started comedy earlier. 
I feel old now and I've only just started in terms of being, you know, getting anywhere. I mean, this is a very lengthy, this is a very lengthy interview for someone that's appeared on 8 out of 10 cats twice as of Monday. Um, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm no one, but, and I've only just started, I've only just started getting anywhere. And if I'd have started when I was younger, that's great. But then again, if I'd started when I was young, I did start when I was younger, but in the wrong kind of department. Uh, no one wanted to see my plays. Um, no one wanted to see my comedy. Oh God, it's word of mouth. It's just word of mouth. My advice to all comedians is just word of mouth. If you're nice to comedians, <laughs> they will say nice things about you and recommend your show. Um, be nice to everyone all the time because you never know who's listening. Um, my <laughs> advice to uh, people out there <laughs> What's the question? <laughs> what is the question? Students. Well, students I, I think I think yeah, the student thing is just kind of like just get on with it, and, you know, if you enjoy it. But yeah, I mean, if I'd have if I'd have got where I am now when I was twenty two, I'd have had absolutely nothing to write about. Um, and and the bonus is that because I've written so much over the years, now I'm in a position where if someone says, "Have you got any ideas?" I can just take a thing that I wrote ten years ago or eight years ago and go, "I've got this." I've got this lying around that I could tart up a bit, you know, because um, they're all valid ideas that I've written. They're maybe not like, in the best format that they are, but I've got 10 years worth of material that I can kind of draw on. Um, so that's kind of like just always right, because no matter when it happens, you can always go back in time. And, and that's why that's the important thing of getting your first show written. You write a first show. No one comes to see it. You've still written an hour. So you write your second hour, no one comes to see that, then you've written two hours. I've written, what, 13 hours that no one has seen. And at the time you think, what a waste of time, what am I going to do next year? Well, it's not a waste of time because now people are coming to see me and I go, oh no, I've got to write a really good hour in a, in a, you know, in, in, in six months. And then what, first thing you do, you go through all your old stuff that you never performed and you go, right, I've got enough to preview and anything else that I write is a bonus. And then you just add to that and then slowly but surely you take all your old stuff out and it's like a rollover. So just write all the time. That's my advice. Just write as much as you can all the time. And also, Edinburgh's brilliant because you book yourself in for an hour. You've got six months to write an hour. You write an hour. Right, whether it's good or bad, you've written an hour. Book yourself another hour. Then you've written another hour. And then book yourself another hour. Without booking yourself in, without giving yourself that deadline, you'll never do it. So you just really, you know, you really need to kind of like impose deadlines on yourself in order to get anything done. And that's th that's the only reason I've written as much as I've written, really, is because I just put myself in for Edinburgh every year. You know, I'd scrape all my money together, put myself in Edinburgh. I didn't even have a, I didn't have a show. I had a title and a 40-word blurb for the Fringe Guide. And you go, right, that's what I'm doing. And you'd write something and then you'd look at the Fringe Guide and you go, actually, it fits in, that's fine. Or, it's, or, or I've got a title and then you write a show that's about that title and you go, I've got a show, that's fine. You know, it's working backwards. You know, title, blurb, poster, then you write your show. And you do that every year and then you've written loads of shows. That's my advice to everyone. And students, keep at it. It'll be all right. <laughs> That's that.